0: Father God, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this time that we have together as a church family, as as people who come and acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior, as people who who, who realize your great magnitude, your great love and mercy over their lives. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity that we had to just come and gather. We thank you for this opportunity to just come and and hear your word preach, and sing songs of grace and sing songs of mercy that lead us to your throne, Father God. We acknowledge that you are the Lord of Lords, that you are sovereign over all, Father God. We ask that as as we dive into your word, as we dive into your scriptures, Father God, that, that you speak to us, Lord, that you convict us in areas that we need convicting, Lord. The areas where we're not honoring you in, Father God, that you reveal those areas to us, Lord, and that you start to chisel those areas away. Father God, may we honor you in this time together, Lord. May we just take the next several moments to just hone in and listen to what you have us, Father God. Be with us. Eliminate any distractions that we have today, Lord, May we focus, and we take this day to focus on you, Father God. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be edifying to these people. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. My name is Ricardo. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, we're, we're excited. Who, who's enjoying the fall weather? It's a beautiful fall day. I know I am. But welcome to Faith Bible Fellowship. As you guys heard, as, as Pastor Ralph made the announcement, we're, we're excited at, as a leadership team on where we're going, that, that we're transitioning out of this season of life, and, and, and we will be transitioning into a new season, but it's an exciting season. And we're all excited, the surrogate elders, the search committee who've worked so hard over the past several months, putting time in, their own time, to really just be in prayer and asking those hard questions and realizing that now we're here. We're finally moving forward, and we're excited. And and as Ralph said, and I'll reiterate, just be in prayer over the next two weeks. Be in prayer on Tuesday as as, as, um, Wesley takes his his oral exam, that he's able to remember what he studied and the time that he's put in, and that he's able to just remember that we're able to just to move forward and be excited for this next season. It's not going to be an easy season, but we're excited that as a church family, we're going to come around, surround Wesley. And make sure that if this is what is in God's will, that we surround Him and, and and prop Him up to be, you know, who we need. That we have to trust in God and trust that God will bring us the man that we need as a church family to lead us into this next season of life. So we're excited. I know I am, and we're, we're just we can't wait for that time. And like you said, we're going to be here next weekend. Just be in prayer. Be in prayer over that. Be in prayer that 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 God is is at His hand is at work at, and through all of this. But. With that said, we're going to be just kind of moving forward. We mentioned last week that we're going to be starting in the book of Mark, and we're just going to kind of keep going with that and just kind of see what God has for us in the book of Mark. So um, if you're not with me, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're going to actually be in the first eight verses. I know we read through 16, but we're going to be focusing on the first, on the first eight verses. So by way of introdu- in, introduction, who, who was Mark? Right, we don't really see. If you look at all the other gospels, if you look at Matthew, if you look at John, if you look at Luke, you don't really come across Mark in those gospels. He's not someone who was a disciple of of Jesus. He wasn't a, an eyewitness to Jesus. Right, we're not. He's not mentioned in any of those. So who is Mark? And, and so we, we, I want to I want to look at that and kind of get a grasp on who he was as a man because he is the one who this letter is, is attributed to. If you look at the top of your Bible, it says the gospel according to Mark. And even though he doesn't identify himself in any of his gospel, that's just kind of what church history has gone with. From the very very early, from like the the first, second century, that that this has been attributed to to Mark. And so who was Mark? Mark was the spiritual son of Peter. We see that in 1 Peter 5.4. When Peter, at the end of his letters, he's sending his final greetings. He says... Who he says, Greetings, I send you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So Peter calls him his son, so we see that that, that he's not his actual son, but but he's, he's his spiritual son. Like Peter sees himself as Mark's spiritual father. So far, intent of purpose, like Mark was discipled, he was under Peter for a while. So but that's not the first time that we actually hear of Mark. And so if you will, if you will turn to me with me, do a little little history. Because I think it's important to understand who Mark was in his history to coming to this gospel. To understand wh- why Mark is choosing to say the things that he does. Choosing to focus on the things that he does. We have to understand who Mark was as a man. So the very first time that we we're actually introduced to Mark is in Acts 12. And if you know the little history there's that Peter is in prison. And so he's there and, he's, and he has a vision. And his vision is as he's leading him out to the prison. He's walking, right? And Peter really doesn't know what's going on. Peter is just kind of, like, oh, this is a cool vision. And it says in Acts twelve twelve, he says, when he realized this, when he realized that he was finally free. So Peter's walking. He has this vision. He doesn't really process everything that's going on at the moment. It's not until he's out of the prison that he realizes, oh, I'm out. This wasn't just a vision. This was the, the angel leading me out of prison. It says in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying this is the first instances where we see the name Mark come across in, in our scriptures. And it says that he went to the, Peter went to the house of Mary. So what does this tell us, right? It tells us that, that Mark was, was a part of a home that, that for all intents and purposes had a church. They were meeting there. They were a house church. And we don't see that, we don't hear the husband's name, right? It says the house of Mary. And to clarify, who was this Mary? The mother of John, whose name was Mark. We're led to believe that 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 Mark, that Mark's mom, Mary, was a widow. That, that, that for some reason his father wasn't around in the picture. And that's why they mentioned Mary and not the husband's name. But he grew up, right? And it says they were gathered together and they were praying. If you go on in verse 13, it says, And when he knocked, Peter, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran. In and reported Peter was standing at the gate. So the servant girl, she she recognizes Peter's voice. And in excitement, she just doesn't even open the door, doesn't open the gate. She leaves to go tell everyone. So she recognizes his voice. So, so what does this tell us? It tells us that, that that to some extent, they know who Peter was, right? Peter did not need to be led there. When he came, when he realized he was free, he just went immediately there. So there was some type of house church we'd we like to believe in Mark's mom's house. And so he's growing up with, with other men, with, with followers, with disciples, with the apostles coming and leading their house church. So he's been discipled. He's been raised in the church for intents and purposes. All right? So then we go down a couple verses later. In verse 25, we see Peter, Mark's name come up again. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Second, instance is where we see Mark come across the scriptures, and, he, and it's he's accompanying Saul, who was at Paul, who at the time was still Saul, Barnabas, back to Antioch. And we know that from Acts 11, something had happened, and Paul and, and Barnabas were sent to Jerusalem to serve, to send some aid, to help out with whatever's going on. So they serve some time there, there for about a year, and after they are done, they're ready to go back home, they're ready to send the report back home, and they take Mark with them. So why do they take Mark with them? Well, in Colossians 4.10, we learned that Mark is actually Barnabas' cousin. So it's that in Colossians 4.10. And so he goes with with Paul, with Barnabas, back to Antioch. They take him with him. they, They give their report. And then really in the next chapter, in Acts 13, we see that Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They go on their first missionary journey, the church of Antioch. Praise over them and sends them out, and they start to plant churches. They start to serve in different churches on their first missionary journey. And who goes with them? It says in, in, in Acts thirteen five, it says when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, Mark, who to assist them. So, Mark was there with them. He went with Paul and with with Barnabas on their first missionary journey to help them, to assist them, right? He's just, he's giving them helping hands. So, he's there on on Paul's very first missionary journey. He's helping. So, this man who who was raised in the church, who for all intents and purposes was discipled by Peter, is now on the mission field with Paul and Barnabas. And then a couple verses later, we see in in eight verses later, in, in, in verse 13, we find out that now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Mark was with them. He was on their missionary journey, and for some reason, he leaves. He returns back to Jerusalem. And we're not given a reason. We're not told why. He just It just says he left them. But if you, if you continue looking, you don't see Mark's name again. Actually, it's two, two chapters later in verse 15. We come across the name Mark again. And you look down. And so this is after the Jerusalem Council, after they sent the letter to the Gentiles. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're, they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. And so they, they're, they're trying to plan it out. And in Acts 15, 36. 41, we, we read this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take, them, take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn with them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers of the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So we come across Mark again, and and really... The reason why this, this, this great duel of Paul and Barnabas separate is over this disagreement about whether they to bring Mark with them or not. Right. And, and the concern that Paul has is that he didn't finish. He started the journey with us, our first missionary journey. But when things got hard, when things weren't going great, he left us. He deserted us. He abandoned us. And So Paul doesn't want to take Mark with them. And it says there in, in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. Right? Barnabas was, I insist on taking Mark with us. Paul's like, I, I don't want to take Mark with us. He deserted us. He left us. He abandoned us. And none of them was budging. And so they separated. The reason they separated, we see here, is because of Mark. But then... We don't hear about it, you know, for obvious reasons. Luke is with Luke, the the author of Acts, is with Paul, and so the rest of Acts is focused in on on Paul and what he's doing. And we don't really hear about Mark until we come across his name again in Colossians four thirteen, where Paul, as he's ending his letter to the Colossian church, he writes. Aristarchus, who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousins. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. So last we heard of Mark was in Acts 15, where Paul did not want him to come with him. He's like, I don't want to bring Mark on our journey. He left us. He deserted us. Years later, we find out that Mark is in prison with Paul. So we don't know what happened. We're not given the context there. We're not given why all of a sudden Mark is in prison with Paul, but I would imagine there's a great redemptive story there where they come across one another and and, and let bygones be bygones, and Mark joins Paul on his work so much that now he's in prison with Paul. The one who walked away, the one who deserted him, the one who abandoned him, now Paul has accepted him back, and now they're working together to proclaim the gospel so much that they're, they're in prison together. And we see that again in Philemon 23, where we see the same instance where Paul, Mark is still in prison with Paul. And so towards the end of his ministry, as Paul is writing 2 Timothy, as he sees his, his death is on the horizon, he's realizing that his time on earth is coming to an end, he writes to Timothy. And he says in, in chapter 4, 11 of 2 Timothy, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he's very useful to me for, for ministry. So we see that, that that now, towards the end of his life, someone who had abandoned him earlier, someone who left them hanging, who who, who chose not to go on because the work was too hard. Now Paul's saying, I need Mark. He is useful to me. And we see that this man who once deserted, who once when it got too hard, deciding he can do the work of God has now been restored. And that is the man who writes this book. That is one of the four Gospels that we have. A man who, who was once a deserter, who once left Paul behind, and was, it got too hard, is now writing, writing a book. And the scholars, if you read them, they'll tell you that, that, that he's writing on account of Peter. Right? He's hearing, he's doing ministry with Peter. He's with Peter who when, when they're in Rome around 50, 60 A.D. And he's hearing these stories. He's watching Peter do his work, and he pens this book. And it's one of the reasons why, why Peter is one of the more, one of the disciples who, who the book focuses on. right? And it, it shows Peter's good and it shows Peter's bad. So it's not really a good thing about Peter, but, but it just shows who Peter was as a human. But he writes this book, Mark writes this to send out, to th- this letter to send out. And he's writing it while in Rome and it's attended for the Roman audience the Jews who are in Rome with them. And he pens this, this beautiful gospel. And so let's get into it right there in verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So now if you look at your Bibles, you have the little top title there. It says the gospel according to Mark. And really, we don't see that come across in our Bibles. We don't see that until about the second century. So so while people were reading, we're, were looking at they were hearing the gospel of, of Luke read, the gospel of Mark. I'm sorry. All they got started off with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And as some commentators noted, that this is simply, this is the title of the story. Like, like if you're at Barnes and & Noble and you're looking at books, this is what you'll see on the back spine. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark, he starts off, he doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point. He's writing about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's saying this is, this is the foundation This is the very basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm writing about. And he starts right away. He doesn't go off on anything else. Just as quickly as Mark ends, as abruptly as as the book of Mark ends, it just gets started right off the bat. Let's go. This is the beginning. This is the foundation. This is the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now when we hear or read the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think of the literary genre, right? This is just one of four. But that's not what, what, what his intended audience would have heard. They, when they heard that, when they saw this is the gospel, there, there was a certain context to what they, they were hearing when that word was proclaimed, the euangelion. It's this idea of this is the good news, this is the glad tidings. You know, in, in Rome specifically, they probably, they, you know, you've heard this euangelion, the gospel was usually used to announce the victory from the battlefield. So he's starting that This is the victory of Jesus Christ. He's won the battle. This is his news. This is his story of, of fighting and ultimately winning the, winning the battle for our souls. Right? You and Galeon, this this the gospel is often used to announce the coming of a king. In this context. So, so he's saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, the King of Kings coming. This is his story. That's what, that's what they hear when they see the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the king's reign. So he doesn't waste any time. So he said this is what he is proclaiming. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God, the Lord of Lords, the king of kings. Leads me to my first point, that we must proclaim the deity of Jesus. Jesus. That if we take the gospel forward, we have to first and foremost acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. There is no way around it. If you don't have that, then you don't have a Savior. That's who he is. That's to his core. He is the Son of God. So Mark is very intentional on how he introduces Jesus. He uses his name, Jesus, Yeshua, in Hebrew, right? Which is basically what it means is Yahweh is salvation. So he's clear to use his human name. Right? And we see that from, from Matthew one twenty one, when, when, when Joseph is debating on what to do, when he finds out that his wife is pregnant, the angel comes to him and speaks to him and says, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this wouldn't, this wouldn't be lost on the audience at the time, that this is, Yahweh's, this is salvation from Yahweh. He goes on, gives you his human name, then he gives him his title. Right? That's not his last name. You know, it's not something you see on a birth certificate, Jesus Christ. This is his title. This is Jesus, the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's what they would have heard. This is the anointed one. He is the king. This would have evoked great hope in his audience. They would have heard this is Jesus, the Christ, and they would have been like, this is our promised savior. This is the great deliverer. This is a royal tie. They, they would have understood that. The significance of, of Mark calling Jesus the Christ would not have been lost on his audience. They would have recognized this as this is the Messiah, the anointing one. They realize that this is their great deliverer. This is the, the Savior that's been promised for them throughout all of scriptures. This is him. So Mark is intentional in giving him that title. Then he says he is the son of God. He points to the deity of Jesus, and that's what it's all wrapped in. That's what, what the book of Mark focuses on. It focuses on the deity of Christ, on his actions, on his miracles, because that proves that he is the actual son of God. He's saying, you Romans, you have your, you have your gods. You have your emperors, or you have your caesars, your kings who you treat as a god. But this is the one true God, he is Jesus, he is the Messiah, the, the anointing when He is the Son of God, He is the one true divine King. That's what Mark is proclaiming here, just in one, in that one verse. You recognize that, you know, in John one forty nine when, when when Jesus is calling Nathaniel, you know, and, and he's coming from a distance, and, and Nathaniel comes and Jesus says, I've seen you from when you were under the fig tree. What, what is Nathaniel's response in verse 49? Rabbi by, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel." See, see the focus of, of Mark throughout this gospel is on. It's painting Jesus as the Son of God. It's on His deity. It's, it's, it's literally all throughout the gospel. You see it? The demons shouted out, "You are the Son of God." When at the Transfiguration at, at chapter nine, verse seven, those there, they acknowledge him as the son of God. What happens when, 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 the, when, the, when those soldiers pierce Jesus' side at the crucifixion? He says, truly, this is the son of God. That's what, what, John, what Mark is getting at, is that, that Jesus is the son of God. Without that, without the deity of Christ, then you don't have a savior. All you have is simply a good teacher. That's so why he says the whole first half. If you look at uh, really up to verse to chapter 8, the whole first half of Mark is focused on, on his divinity. And it's showing his divinity through his teaching, through his miracles, through his actions. Mark is focusing on Christ's divinity. Then the second half, he focuses it on through his death and resurrection. Mark wants to make sure that the readers understand that this, this Jesus guy, this, this, this Savior, he is the Son of God. So that has to be evident for us. We don't have the gospel if, if he's not the son of God. When we go out and we, and, we, and we preach the gospel to people and we share the gospel with them, we have to make sure that we tell them the truth, that Jesus is the son of God. We cannot forget the divinity of Christ. It has to be a part of our message. Something has to be what we proclaim. Like I said, without the divinity of Christ, all you have is just a great teacher, That's what people struggle with with the most. You know, if you look at at Thomas Jefferson, he had the Jefferson Bible, where where he he goes through the Bible and he really just eliminates, he rips out, he rearranges things, and he leaves out all the miracles of Jesus. And leaves all his good teachings, but he leaves out the miracles without the divinity of Christ, without his miracles, then you don't have a savior. It's a part of, of what it means to be the, the, the ultimate sacrifice. That's why John 3 16 is so important for the love for God, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. It's, it's the fact that he is God himself, God, God incarnate. That's why we're able to have the faith that we have. It's important. And so he goes on, he, 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 emphasizes, he emphasizes this all throughout these first eight verses. Verse three says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, he, he emphasizes that Jesus is the one true King by emphasizing on on, the, on Jesus' forerunner. Mark understanding his audience, understanding what they're looking for, understanding that at that time, whenever a king was arriving, there were there were go people who go before him, his, the king's forerunners, and they'll prepare the way. They'll make arrangements here and there, and then when the king is there, they they have that little horn. We've all seen the movies where boop, 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 boop. That's that's the idea. That's what. what what John was doing. He's the forerunner to Christ. And so Mark, instead of quoting prophecy about Jesus, he quotes prophecy about John the Baptist, about Jesus' forerunner, to show the authority that John is coming in. He understands that that, that to his audience, just as important as the king is, is the announcement of the king is coming. So he he shows how how this has always been God's main idea. This has always been God's plan. This isn't plan B. This isn't God, you know, changing things up now because someone threw him a curveball. This has always been God's plan, was to have John in the wilderness, preaching, preparing the way for Jesus. Just like any other forerunner would for a king, John is there preparing the way for Jesus to come because he has the authority of God to do so. So, how did John do this? How did John prepare the way? So, you see that in verse 4 John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, a proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Who was he baptizing? Verse 5 And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, in other words, this, this is Jewish people. They're the ones who are coming, who are being baptized. And that's significant. Because in in this time, baptism was only for Gentiles. It was for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Who are now who were outside of God's chosen people are now coming into God's chosen people. As a part of that ritual was for them to go get baptized. So this was something that was only done by Gentiles. But John shows up and he's preaching out in the wilderness and he's baptizing. Jewish people. So so by by doing so, by by Jewish people coming out to the wilderness and being baptized, they're acknowledging themselves that they are no longer God's chosen people. He's preparing their hearts. They they hear the message that that John is giving, and and they're being convicted, and so they're acknowledging that they need something else, that they're not... uh, part of God's chosen people that their lineage doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter if they can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. That's not how they enter the Messiah's kingdom. It doesn't matter how, how, how great they follow the, the law itself. That that doesn't make them a part of the Messiah's kingdom. You see, he's preparing the way because he's softening the hearts of Jewish people by, by proclaiming that one greater than him is coming. By pointing them to Christ, he's preparing their hearts. For when Jesus does come, simply by being baptized, they are acknowledging this. They're acknowledging that, that in order for this to happen, in order for, for Jewish people to put back, put away their, their, their old roots, they have to have this heart transformation. They have to repent that they that they that they're not fit for the Messiah's kingdom. That no matter what they may have done, no matter where they may have been, how great they follow the law, They are no longer fit for the Messiah's kingdom. So something has to change. As we see in Deuteronomy 10, 16, that that, that Israel is made up of true repentant sinners. Those who love the Lord, they are truly repentant. So he's he's guiding, he's leading them this way. He's he's calling them to repent. He's pointing them towards Christ. He's, He's preparing the way for Christ as a true forerunner. Go verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why would, why, why would Mark include this? This could be one of the reasons why so many people were willing to come out to the wilderness. This is 25, 30 miles, the Jordan River is 25, 30 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. It's out there. They have to be willing to come. One of the reasons is, is that his appearance is very much like how, how Elijah is describing 2 Kings 8 um, Elijah is describing very much the same manner of wearing, wearing wearing the same clothes. And so, like, that wouldn't have been missed on the audience, All right, That this is probably the, the second coming of Elijah, Right. And Jesus himself in, in Matthew 11 points to, to John as a, of a figure like of Elijah. So this is why people were coming. They, they understand, they see John, they, they he reminds them of Elijah, and then they think, it's coming. The Savior, our Messiah is coming. So they have to prepare themselves, and they hear John, and they hear his message, and they're willing to turn. They're willing to say that it doesn't matter how far my roots go back doesn't matter how much I've gone according to the law. I'm not fit to be in the Messiah's kingdom. So they turn from their ways. So what is the message? What is is John preaching on? We see that in verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? It's it's to have to be your heart have been regenerated. It's it's that you you are you are currently being saved. So he's proclaiming here by, by, by sharing this message, he's proclaiming that, that Jesus. Saves you that Jesus will rescue you from your sins. That's my second point. We have to proclaim that Jesus saves. That you are saved through the work of Christ on the cross. That by, by Jesus coming, He's 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 baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. It's not a surface level anymore, it's a heart. That, that the baptism of Jesus goes below the surface, it goes deep into your heart, and it changes you, it saves you, it transforms you into something different. You are a new creator, you are a new creation. It's, he's referring to the regenerative, regenerative work of salvation that, that God is doing in our hearts. That this is what Jesus will do, he will save you, he will turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He's pointing to to Christ's supremacy, the preeminence of of Christ, of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who will truly save you from your sins. John tries to paint this point across by saying, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This was a job that was for the lowest of slaves in the homes. Right? If you were at the bottom of the, of the slaves, you're the one who went to people's feet, untied their sandals, and washed them. It's not a job I would like to do. John's, like, John, John's saying, "Here, I'm not even worthy of doing that. That's how great this king who's coming, that's how great who Jesus the Messiah, the son of God is. That even me, I'm not worthy enough of untying and cleaning his feet. That's who Jesus is. That's who we proclaim. That's how great he is. He is the Son of God. And he's come to save us from our sins. To lead us, to point us toward God. The baptism of Jesus goes below below the surface. It's a soul transforming baptism that we have through the Spirit. He's saying, I, John is saying, I baptize you in water, but he baptizes you in the spirit. He cleanses your soul. He transforms you. And it's through this, it's through this baptism of the spirit that you are born again. That's why Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We're made new through the the baptism of the spirit that we receive through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his love for us, that he's willing to die on the cross on our behalf. (coughs) That is what what we're called to do. That is what Jesus is doing for us. That is what, what Mark is pointing towards. He's pointing towards the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He, is the, the, he has divine power. And it's through his sacrifice, it's through his love that we're able to be considered Christians today. We're able to consider the Lord as our God because of what Christ has done on the cross. And the story doesn't end there. This is just the beginning, as he says back in verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Christ. And if you look at the way the gospel of Mark ends, it doesn't have a true ending. It just ends really with, with the ladies coming and seeing the tomb and them just leaving scared. Is that really how the story ends? No. This is just the beginning. There's, there's so much more to do. That's right, we got the great commission. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark ends his book abruptly because the work isn't done the story continues we're still a part of that story we have been made new if you have if you accepted christ as your lord and savior if you have him in your heart then you are a new creation you have a new heart you've been transformed you're now more concerned with the ways of god than with the ways of the world all the sins that you've ever committed are no longer held against you because of the work of Christ on the cross. That's valuable to all. Just like John was to point to, to Christ as, and show his divine power is the one who, who true forgiveness can be found. We are to do the same. That's our calling, to point people to Christ, as, to point them as to their Lord and Savior, to help them realize that they are sinners, and that God is holy, and that without Christ, we don't earn anything. We don't have salvation. We only get it through Christ and his work on the cross, not our works. That's what we need to be pointing towards. The story doesn't end with the girls leaving, with the women leaving. The story continues through us. We have to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he has come to save people from their wretchedness. He's come to save people from their sin and give them new life to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, to lead people to point towards God and God alone. That's the purpose of of Mark. And that's our purpose. That's what we live for. That's what we need to be working towards. Pointing people towards Christ for all who he is for being the Messiah, for being the Son of God. That's what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the Savior. That's what Mark is doing. That's what John does, and that's what we need to be doing. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We acknowledge that, that without you, Lord, we, we, we're not able to, to, to do anything. That without you, we, we can't save ourselves, Lord. It's your work. It's you sending your son to die on our behalf. We acknowledge that you are the Lord of Lords the host of hosts. You're the one true God, the creator of all. We proclaim that your son comes to save people, to bring them closer to you, to reconcile the world to you, Father God. Be with us today, Lord, as we spend the rest of this Lord's Day. May we just spend time with family, spend time in laughter, spend time in prayer. Father God, keep us safe as we go about the day's We will go home, may we rest, knowing that your son has come to save us from our sins. That we have assurance because of what Christ has done on the cross. Not because we've done anything, but because of the work of Christ. That is where our hope, that is what our faith is in, Father God. We praise you. We honor you in your son's mighty, powerful name. Amen.